Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Oh, my dying fellow sinners, pause, I beseech you, pause and think. What is your life? Strive to live every day and hour under the impression that it is even a vapor. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon preached by Heman Humphrey. It was preached in 1833 at Amherst College in Massachusetts. All right, so this one's for all those Amherst uh, college people. You know, that's I, yeah. I didn't I, I didn't know it had to call it a Christian background. I didn't really know much about. I didn't either. This yeah. Episode, so learned a little bit there. Uh, before we get into that, though, wanted to say thank you to Jason, who wrote us an email responding to our uh, four years episode. Really grateful, very kind email about how much he's been enjoying the show and enjoying listening to the different sermons from uh, specifically he noted from just a variety of backgrounds. There are not a lot of places you can learn about people that are just in different theological traditions from different continents and from different time frames where you can learn about all of them uh, in one spot. So we're really in, glad you enjoy that, Jason. We appreciate that. We also wanted to give a little shout out to a friend of ours, Patrick at Cave to the Cross, gave us a shout out on a podcast interview he was doing, just telling people to check us out. And we're really thankful for that as well. So thank you, Patrick, for giving us some love out there. Yeah, today we're talking about Heman Humphrey, who was born in Connecticut in 1779. And he was uh, one of the fundamental establishing people in Amherst uh, University, which started off as a, a Christian university, Christian college. He's not from a wealthy family. He grew up to uh, his his a family of farmers, a farming tradition. His uh, family moved to America in 1643 and uh, and made their living humbly farming. The first real information we seem to have about him is when he uh, went to college. Uh, he's graduating at the age of 26. He graduated from Yale, and he almost immediately went into the ministry, was ordained as a congregational minister, and uh, congregational ministers were, um, Troy, would you say it's fair that they were kind of born out of the, the Puritan movement? They were like... Yeah, a, that's a, a, they kind of, uh, to use the phrase, evolved out or adapted out of that movement right. and became what they, at least in America, what they kind of represented. 
Right. They were very big on missions work in the area. One of the things that kind of made them different is that they operated independently, kind of some of America's first independent churches. They made their own decisions. They weren't connected to a uh, overseeing denomination that, that made decisions for them. So he became a congregational minister two years after graduating. And then 10 years after that, he moved to Massachusetts, where uh, most of his life takes place. Most of his big events take place. One thing that stood out about Heman Humphrey was that he was a very early proponent of the temperance uh, prohibition movement. And it's interesting because when you think of, the, I don't know, when I think of the temperance movement, the, the prohibition uh, movement, which is a movement that was kind of, let's get rid of alcohol, let's clean up society and get rid of this evil. I think of it as happening after the Civil War. I think mm-hmm. it's something that happens in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, but we're, this, his, first pamphlet on it here shows up around the year 1813. And so this movement was already beginning almost 100 years, I think, before most of us think of the temperance movement as having happened. And he's a very early proponent of it. One of the very first people to basically write a pamphlet saying, let's get rid of uh, alcohol in this country. And he, he in his uh, documents, I looked at them, he was saying basically alcohol is the source of this great number of evils that we have to eliminate. He was saying uh, how many people would be alive today if it wasn't for, you know, they had drank themselves to death or they got liver poisoning or while drunk they made a stupid decision that cost them their life? How many families would still have fathers or brothers or daughters had alcohol not been uh, allowed to just flow so freely? Humphrey uh, produced articles and books on this subject. And again, he, his other argument for it was um, uh, how much he thought that People who drink on such a regular basis always will tell you, he said, no matter how drunk they are, no matter how clearly addicted, if they're the tr- town drunk or in, or the, the wine nibbler is a, a phrase I used to hear sometimes, uh, they would always say that I'm only, I only have a moderate amount and that I drink it for my health. And he pointed, everyone says that, yet year after year, they continue to drink themselves until they have poisoned themselves to death. And then in the pamphlet, he mentioned all these stats of, how many thousands of gallons each town and the county was consuming, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars were going into the coffers of the alcohol companies because of each count, each town and how many doctors he had talked to who said people in this county are dying from just drinking so much. It was just interesting to me. I, I think most of us are not prohibitionists today. Uh, that's a movement that is, you know, 100 years. We're looking at 100 years after it's died. And he's talking about it really 100 years before it's taken place. But it was interesting to me to see how thorough the case was and how, like, fully scientific and well, like, how they'd already fully put it together by those very early 1800s. And this was a subject that was very personal to Heman Humphrey. I looked through him. I tried to find if was there a family member and was there some personal connection why he felt this was so important to him. But there was just not enough information on this gentleman to find it, which was a little disappointing because based on how much he wrote about it and based on how important it was to him, I really do think there was something that was driving him, that there was some experience or something that he had that made him think this this world would be better if people weren't able to access alcohol. But again, I, I can't find what it was that caused it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting to go back in time and see what influences on his life uh, kind of shaped his worldview in that way. Uh, in 1823, he became president of Amherst College. And Amherst was 
a baby, brand new at the time, literally within a couple of years of its foundation. I'm not quite sure what the connections were. You know, it sounds like uh, he he must have been close knit with the the, the startup of it. Uh, forty students at the time, literally forty students. It's it's brand new. It's it's starting up. Uh, in his commencement, he said, "Quote: You must begin with a young man early." must teach him self-denial and gradually subject him to such hardships as will help to consolidate his frame and give increasing energy to all physical power, end quote. So there's this idea of like physical fitness as well that that flows into his educational worldview uh, that you need to be like, you need to work out your mind and you need to work out your body. Like you, they both need to be physically ready, mentally ready at the same time. Uh, and this would actually lead to him also founding a gymnast society as well, as well as also, again, pushing this temperance movement, this temperance club uh, on the campus as well to get people involved with that line of thinking. He wanted people at Amherst to be a school where people not only did great things for God, but he he talks about often seeing a lack of physical fitness and how that's that was holding people back from doing that like like people being lazy people not being in shape and like how that would uh, affect how effectively people are able to minister which um is a is like such a foreign concept to how we think <laughs> like that's certainly not the modern like we would never no. pair those things together but it Good, for him I would, and we Joel and I both went to Bible college together for those of you who maybe knew didn't know where we met and yeah. I, I can't imagine, Joel, could you imagine the president of the Bible college getting out there and being like, hey, the gym's been pretty empty lately. The weight room, are you, are you guys physically fit to go out there and do God's work? It's it's such a absolutely foreign concept. Right. And, and yet it makes sense if you aren't right. physically fit, if you can't <laughs> run a mile, that will affect you in the ministry, I think. it would. I think it would make a really interesting study. I don't know, because a, a lot of your theologians or, or yeah, school chairmen, school presidents, they have ideas on different ways to minimize and maximize different areas of people's lives to make them more efficient, you know, that they, that they try to implement just like he's doing here. Um, I would be curious to see uh, a non-biased, you know, study where um, how much does physical fitness play into how effective you are at, at mm. being academic and, and also in the ministry yeah. here? Um, I, I, you know, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it's more than what most people are thinking. I bet. I think it's also, I think it can be a real blind spot for, I mean, even in the 1800s, there's talking about it, but I think it'd be a real blind spot for people uh, today. I remember, but in the 1800s, there's this story uh, where Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody met and they had met, I think before, but they met each other. And uh, when Spur when Moody walks into like the room to meet Spurgeon, he's like, oh, you're smoking a cigar, huh? That's kind of a, I don't know if that's such a good thing, kind of a sin, basically. And and Spurgeon goes, well, you're pretty overweight. Isn't that also kind of a sin? Uh, gluttony is not good either. And it's just this kind of idea of that physical fitness and how you take care of your body. Um, and somehow we'll, we'll miss one blind spot while catching another. I don't know. That's what it reminded me of. Hmm. Well, it did seem to, I mean, this model did seem to help Amherst because it did explode within a decade. Uh, it was one of the biggest schools in in America, only behind Yale, really. Yale was bigger, but uh, the second biggest school in America, I guess, is how you could word that. Yeah, it was it was growing fast. You know what? <laughs> it, we don't have a case study. Bible colleges, if you're listening, tell, implement a physical fitness regimen um, and a gymnast club, and then let, get back to us in a decade. Let us know, did that, yeah. did that help everything out? 
the other thing Heman Humphrey was influential over was uh, abolitionism. He was a big anti-slavery proponent up there. He hated slavery. He wrote about it often. He pushed for it, you know, as he's founding these clubs at Amherst, the things that he wants the students of Amherst to be aware of. Another one he was pushing for was, you know, fighting slavery and an abolitionist kind of get involved society. Um, his own son grew up to be a U.S. representative named James Humphrey. Now, the only reason I'm telling you this is because he died uh, while in office. It's very sad, obviously. He died after his father, about you know, good 15 years after his father. His son, James Humphrey, passes away to be replaced in office by a man from New York, also named James M. Humphrey, which I, I really... How did that happen? So you had two guys... Um, Named no the same exact man. name from the same place, one taking the place of the other. And I imagine that must have been really confusing on the campaign. So they really uh, confusing anyway. or or it, it was it was super easy because no one had to <laughs> figure out. The Get new out there guy's and vote name. James Humphrey. Uh, it's too late. We it's we've already got him on the candidate. We yeah. didn't expect him to die. Easy well, peasy. No one find has to us another anything. James Humphrey and then it'll be OK. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> Um, anyway, so the, the, our guy though, uh, Heman, uh, he ran the college of Amherst for about 23 years. He got in there and it's pretty much its second year of creation. He solidified it. He really shaped it and modeled it and showed it what a college, you know, president could be and really kind of impacted those early days of what Amherst would go on to be. Amherst is still, uh, is still a college to this day, and this is one of its very early founders. And he's going to talk about the importance of eternity. Time measured by eternity, James 4, 14. For what is your life? This question has met the eye of thousands without making the slightest impression upon their minds. And I fear it is commonly dismissed as with as little thought as if it related to the most trifling subject. But when we pause for a moment to consider its import, when we glance at its momentous bearings and listen to its deep-toned emphasis, it assumes an importance compared with which many of those great questions that agitate nations are of less weight than the dust of the balance. For what is your life? The first and most obvious answer is that which the Apostle himself gives. It is even a vapor which appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It is a momentary scene of hope and disappointment, of joys and sorrows, of entrances and exits. But as we dwell upon the question, there is another thought of far deeper interest. It is that our life is a threshold of eternity, the infancy of immortality, that here our characters are to be formed for the innumerable ages of future being, that our everlasting happiness or misery is suspended upon our improvement of this inch or two of time. What an amazing value do these considerations give to the breath that is in our nostrils. I am aware that the text does not directly contemplate all that is suggested in these remarks. It primarily challenges our serious meditations upon the shortness and uncertainty of life. But as this life is our only probation, I think myself warranted in calling your attention also to this more extended application of the question. I shall accordingly, number one, consider it in reference to this momentary and checkered state of being. 
And number two is affording the only opportunity to prepare for a happy eternity. First, let us consider the text in reference to the brevity and uncertainty of life. What is your life? Can you grasp the vapor? Will it stay to be analyzed, or does it not rather mock all your efforts and vanish when you think you hold it most securely? You breathe the vital air, but surely this is not your life. You live because you eat and drink and sleep, and you walk and act and speak because you live. But who can describe that pervading invisible something to which we give the name of life and which keeps the crimson tide in perennial motion? What in reference to its continuance is your life? A vapor, a tale that is told, a dream, a fading leaf, a dissolving cloud, a withering flower. We perceive it, or rather we see what indicates its presence when the sun goes down, and in the night it passes suddenly away. We go into the chamber, we look where it was, but it is gone. There is a body just as it used to be with all its members and organs and displaying as much as ever the handiwork of the Creator. But if we speak to it, there is no hearing and no answer. If we handle it, it is as cold as a clod. If we reason or expostulate, if we mourn or rejoice, it regards us not. It does not move a limb, nor drop a tear, nor put on a smile. The eye may be open, but it sees nothing. The heart is there, but is still and dead as a stone. In short, all the mysterious functions of life have ceased. The late inhabitant is far away. Only the moldering frame is left, and the dust must return to the dust as it was. Verily, my hearers, your life is a vapor. It appears like the mist upon the mountain side, and while we behold it, suddenly vanishes away. And what is your life contemplated with reference to the sweetest and most lasting earthly enjoyments? How long will they continue? Perhaps an hour or a day, and possibly a little longer. But what is a day or a year or even the space between infancy and gray decrepitude? What is the scriptural biography of one who lived twelve or fifteen of our ages? Why that he was born and that he died? Who is there that does not look back upon all his past enjoyments as upon a dream when one awaketh? Ah, ye votaries of pleasure, when you come to lie down upon the bed of death, and take an inventory of all that you now call happiness, what will it amount to? Lay it carefully under your pillow, will it ease your throbbing and half-distracted brain? Press it to your heart, will it bring back the warm and genial current of life? Read over the items one by one. So much sensual pleasure, so much money, so many houses and lands, so much honor. Then look at the footing. Ah, oh, what is the available sum when all these enjoyments are over? Think of it. Bring it still nearer to your waning eyes and grasp it again if you can. When your friends shudder to remain with you in your chamber and death's pale attendants are all busily at work and taking down your shattered tabernacle. What in that awful moment is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life? What are all the bygone delights of the fancy, of the taste, of the imagination, or the intellect? They are as if they had never been, or when recollected, they only serve to make the approach of the king of terrors more unwelcome. And what, on the other hand, is your life, when estimated in full view of all its thousand ills? They may cause the flesh to quake and the heart to bleed for a moment. 
but they will soon be over, perhaps in one short hour, certainly within a period so short, that it will appear as nothing in the long retrospect of future being. This I say, brethren, the time is short. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And this to the righteous is the morning of a day which will never end. But whether you are righteous or wicked, when you come to look back from beyond the gates of death, upon whatever you may have suffered in this life, your past sorrows, like your past joys, will flit away as the shadows of a momentary dream, and you will wonder how you could ever have been so disquieted by them. Thus far my remarks have been general, but you will permit me to come a little nearer by addressing different classes of my audience. And what, my gray-headed and tottering friends, is your life? How short the period since you were in the cradle and dandled in the lap of parental affection. Once you thought, no doubt, that seventy years must be long enough for anyone to live. But tell me, what is your present estimate? Ah, methinks I hear you falter. Few and evil have been our days. So true it is that time advancing hides his wings and seems to creep on young. What then is a pass with you but a restless night spent between waking and sleeping? How much of life is now left besides wrinkles and infirmities, days without pleasure and nights without repose? And how long can you expect to live? Oh, how many warnings have you of approaching dissolution, loss of sight, loss of hearing, loss of memory, loss of strength, your skin cleaving more and more to your bones, limbs trembling, joints stiffening, hair whitening, grinders ceasing, in short, all the harbingers of death gathering about you, and officially tendering their services to prepare your last bed, your coffin, your shroud, and your abode in dust, where worms shall crawl over you. And you men of business and of might in the high meridian of your course, what is your life? Were we to make up an estimate from your daily conversation, from the eagerness of your worldly pursuits, from your extensive plans and far-reaching expectations, we must suppose you exempted from the common lot of mortality. But no estimate can be more delusive. Strip your life, then, of these fictitious and imposing circumstances, and what is it but a vapor? What obstacle does your fine constitution oppose to the ravages of disease, to the stroke of death? How many firmer have fallen in a few days or hours? You are rejoicing perhaps in a degree of health which knows but few and trifling interruptions. And so were thousands one week ago who are now still and powerless with the nations underground. You have, it may be, large and dependent families, and so had many of them. But the clinging and sobbing of their little ones could not save them. How many, even of your own acquaintance, have been called for when all were ready to say they could not be spared? You wish to live to educate your children and see them advantageously settled in the world, but what is your life? What longer or better lease have you than your neighbor had, whose wife is now a widow and his children orphans? But you have talents and a name, perhaps. You have begun to rise and your influence is increasing. The temple of fame shines high and afar in your bright horizon, and there is many a glittering eminence between you and the elevation to which you ultimately aspire. But pause for a moment and think. 
what is your life? Where now are some whose prospects were brighter yesterday than any that can rise to your view? And where tomorrow will the admirers of others look for them but in the grave? Be entreated then, I beseech you to pause and answer the Apostle's question, What is your life? But you are laying up property by industry and frugality you hope in a few years to become rich. But where are these few years on which you count with so much assurance? Remember death is no respecter of wealth and possession or in prospect. He can unclench the firmest grasp. Nothing it would seem delights him more than tearing away the worldling from his home and blasting the fairest prospects, which spread themselves out in his golden slumbers. But I turn to another class of my hearers. And what, my young friends, is your life? It appears to most of you, I doubt not, like a great estate or something far better than that, an almost certain reversion. Your fancy collects the brightest colors, and your imagination paints the landscape in the most charming hues. It spreads over it the life, the beauty, and fragrance of spring. It is a delightful elevation at which you aim, which rejoices in the bright visitation of your morning without clouds. And to your ardent gaze everything brightens still as you advance. Former disappointments avail nothing. The ambush of disease you do not suspect, and even death stalks about unheeded, though in plain view, and threatening at almost every turn to cross your path. You live in an Elysian future. Whoever may fall short of the goal, you expect soon to be there, to be greeted by a long train of obsequious delights, cruel officiousness. You may be ready to say which would darken such a prospect, but I must, though it were at the hazard of your displeasure, deal truly and faithfully with you. For what is your life? How much is it worth to the halest and most sanguine youth of this assembly? What is the tenor by which you hold the precious boon? Who has so lately come down from heaven to contradict the Bible, no less than the experience of every day, and to declare that the young shall not die? If you have any such lease of life... Produce it, and let me look at the signature. Ah, my young friends, it is at best but a forgery or a blank. What though you never seriously think of dying, can this stupid presumption save you when the relentless messenger shall come into your windows? You are young, but how many millions have died younger? Consult the first bill of mortality that comes in your way and ask yourself, What is my life? A mere scratch may destroy it. An insect may undermine the frail tabernacle. A very moth may sever some thread on which it all depends. It is only to shut out a little air or to let in a floating atom to rankle for a few moments in your vitals and all will be over. Your bloom, health, and hopes perish together. What then, my young friends, is your life? Oh, be persuaded whenever you enter the place of graves to make out the estimate there. Consult the records of the marbled planted fields. They will not deceive you. Go from stone to stone as you read. Say, what is my life? In every view thus far taken of the text, we are brought to the same solemn conclusion that all flesh is grass. The man at his best estate is altogether vanity, but too. There is another view of the subject which makes life of unspeakable value. I mean when we consider it as a preparatory to an endless existence beyond the grave. 
In this light of vapor as it is, our present life is everything. If all the mountains in the world were gold and silver, they would not be weighed against it. Their value would be nothing in the comparison. Think, oh, think if you can, what are the interests which are suspended by the most brittle thread? God has sent us to stay a few days here, and for what? To prepare for death. For death not on account of its intrinsic importance, but as a gate of eternity. Here then we are put on trial, and here the momentous question is to be decided whether we shall go to heaven or hell, whether we shall dwell with angels or devils, whether we shall rise and shine and shout in glory or sink and well in the blackness of darkness forever. Yes, my hearers, the grand question is to be settled here and settled soon and settled finally. In this point of view, the length of one person's life compared with that of another makes not the least difference. Be it longer or shorter, it is all. It may be ten or fifteen or twenty years. It may be a little more or it may be less, but there will be no other state of trial. The young man or young woman who lives in sin but twenty years and then dies impenitent plunges as surely into the lake of fire and brimstone is a hoary-headed sinner of fourscore. There is therefore no equal portion of our existence, no conceivable duration in eternity which can for one moment be compared with the present life and point of importance. There are a thousand ages of joy or woe will decide nothing as to the future. Here one day may decide everything. A million of years then after death may be of less moment to the man who is now on his deathbed than a few moments which he still has to live. Upon that short period a whole eternity may be suspended. Does this point need illustration? Suppose then that a kingdom were offered to a man and that he must comply with the conditions in an hour or lose it forever. How much more would depend upon that hour than upon all the rest of his life? Suppose that one of you had been condemned to suffer perpetual imprisonment in chains and in a dungeon, and an hour was granted you to sue for pardon, and upon the most humble confession to obtain your liberty. How much more valuable would that hour be than fifty subsequent years of night and solitude in chains? But how inadequate, how poor is every possible illustration! to set forth the amazing value of a life which in every other point of view is nothing. Great God, on what a brittle thread hang everlasting things. The subject suggests many solemn inferences and remarks, among which are these, number one, if human life is so short and so uncertain, if it is but a momentary vapor, let all who hear me make out their estimates and lay their plans and conduct all their concerns accordingly. You know you must die. Oh, that you would lay it to heart. You know that the present breath is all that you are sure of. As for the past, what is it? I appeal to you whether it appears most likely a reality or a dream. As for the present, you see continually the dying and the dead. But oh, tell me, are you not living as if life never closed? You are unless you are actually striving to enter in at the straight gate, unless you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. How little do many of you think in the hurry of business, in the pursuits of literature, of gain and of pleasure, in the strength of manhood, in the heedlessness of youth. How little do you think of the hour of death, of the darkness and the worm, the dust and oblivion to which you are hastening, 
O my dying fellow sinners, pause, I beseech you, pause and think. What is your life? Strive to live every day and hour under the impression that it is even a vapor. Let all your worldly schemes be based upon this great truth that you know not what shall be on the morrow. Number two. Is life, when contemplated in connection with eternity, of such amazing importance? Is it a state of trial? And is all beyond a recompense of rewards? Are the eternal interests of your souls depending on the few sands that remain? Is heaven to be won or lost on this foot or two of earth, and in this inch or two of time? Is a crown of glory to be soon gained or lost forever by each individual before me? And are you rational beings? Do you know all this? Has God told you that now is the accepted time? Does he expostulate with you today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart? Does he admonish you, boast not thyself of tomorrow? And yet you can waste in unprofitable care or speculation that precious time which to each sinner in a state of probation is worth more than millions of worlds. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. Thousands there are who will not be persuaded to seek the salvation of their souls, to secure the pearl of great price, though God from above warns them, though hail from beneath is moved for them, though justice frowns from her awful seat and mercy pours out her heart over them like water. Is not this the case with some of you? Are you not wasting life and wearying divine forbearance and sliding heaven and braving the terrors of damnation? And what will you do when the scene closes? Will you not then curse your present infatuation? Will you not cry out a world for an hour, a world for an hour? But where will be your world to offer? And if you had a million, what would the offer avail? Is there, fellow sinner, one thing between you and the grave which you can clench to with any confidence that your hold may not in a moment be broken? And then, oh, eternity! Have you thought of eternity? And in this view, have you ever attempted to estimate a day, an hour of probation? Have you made your peace with God? Have you been convinced of your perishing condition as a sinner? Have you fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before you in the gospel? Is your soul washed in a Savior's blood? Is it meat for the society of angels, of the just, made perfect? What if death should enter your room this night and you wake up tomorrow in another world? For what world, I ask, would you be fitted? Oh, think, what is your life when you lay your plans and hopes rise before you in endless prospect? Think, what is your life when God calls and the tempter says, Tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Think, what is your life? Ah, it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Then though you call the world your own, and though you understand all knowledge without the favor of Emmanuel, you are undone forever. It's important to note that Amherst, though started with a Christian mission and goal, uh, drifted away from those things and is no longer really about any of those things that it was once founded by Heman, uh, not he founded by Heman, but Heman Humphrey very early on became a part of. However, in this sermon, he talks about the importance of what we do in the light of eternity. And the things that he did helped set a college in motion to be Christian for its first 80 or so years, which is not too bad. And he 
was very focused in the sermon. I, I love the imagery he had of if you knew you had one hour before you spent the rest of your life in jail, you had one hour to make your case in front of your judge, what wouldn't you do, right? That one hour would mean everything to you for the next 50 years if you spent yourself, your life in solitary confinement because you were unable to convince the judge not to put you in jail. And you would probably replay that one hour of your life over and over and over again, thinking, what could I have said? What could I have done differently to convince the judge that I shouldn't be in solitary confinement? And it would just haunt you. And he's saying, that is what our lives are like. We have one life to live for Jesus Christ, and that is it. And the consequence of not living this life in the light of eternity will be so much longer. I always am looking for good illustrations of eternity because I think it's such a hard concept, especially for younger people to grasp. And I think that Humphrey did a really good job of just laying it out there saying, this is more important than anything else we live for. His college did not go on to, you know, live for Christ all into eternity. The college that he poured his blood, sweat, and tears did not end up making it. In fact, the movement, temperance movement that he believed in so passionately didn't end up making it either. However, Humphrey lived his life for Christ as far as I can tell, and he is living and reigning with our Savior for eternity because he spent that one hour the right way. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Thomas Sullivan. You can hear more of Thomas Sullivan over at The Narrated Puritan. Tom recently retired from the Postal Service, where he's worked since 1994. He began narrating sermons in December of 1985 for the Chapel Library when he was in Venice, Florida. He teaches American church history and the theology of Christian experience. He has lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 31 years and has been a Reformed Baptist since 1984. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, I think it's a great episode for, you know, evangelism, or even if not, you know, you're going to send somebody to evangelize, but just for kind of learning how to share the gospel and get the import of eternity in, in our minds. Uh, I think it's a good one. You should share this episode. Send it to somebody who maybe needs to hear it. Maybe there's somebody in your, you know, friends list, somebody you think would grow from this, somebody you've been discipling, somebody you've been working with. I don't know. Maybe you have a Christian in your life. Send this episode to them and hopefully it will edify and encourage them as it hopefully edified and encouraged you. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.